So, you know, we've been going through uh, the book of Acts, and, and this is the first year since I've been here that, that we didn't, like, have a special, like, Christmas series that goes, like, usually for four or five, sometimes up to six weeks. And, it, you know, um, I'm not going to say I planned all this out. Kind of unintentionally, it kind of worked out that for the past, like, two Sundays and then tonight and on the Sunday morning, the focus is, you know, where I really think it should be. There's so much on, you know, from two weeks ago where we were, we were focusing so much on Paul and Paul preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then, and then last week, you know, when John was preaching, he was, he was sharing how Paul was bringing, you know, the full gospel and he was sharing the gospel with, with those who were there. And then tonight we're going to, we're going to look at this very familiar text something that you've heard sung a lot, you've heard people say it again and again, but I want us to look at it but, and, and slow down for a second and really think about it. Because tonight, we're going to focus even more on who is Jesus. And then Sunday morning, when we go through back, and when we go into our Sunday morning, it's the only kind of specifically Christmas message that we have. Again, we're going to talk about who who is this Jesus? I think what happens, like, like this is my 58th Christmas, and it's my 55th that I can actually remember. I don't really remember the first two or three. Um, and you know what happens, I think, with things like Christmas is, is it's not that they become empty, but they become comfortable. And, and they become so familiar that we that we can sing the songs and we can say these words. The songs we, we sang, you know, t- tonight, the, the, the lyrics are so rich. And they're, they're saying incredibly important things about who Jesus is. But unfortunately, we've, sometimes we've done them so many times, it's like, it, it, we, it doesn't really have the effect. You know, we're, we're, we're singing Christ is the Lord, and it's like, what does that make me feel? What does it make me understand about who Jesus is? And, and just for a little while, we're going to just take a brief look tonight at what one section of Scripture, very familiar at Christmas time, that tells us about who Jesus is. And I want you to listen, and I want you to listen carefully. You know, those of you who came Wednesday night, you got some practice. You were listening carefully for how Jesus is described in this passage. But for the rest of us, let's, let's listen to these words from Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, we, we sometimes hear these words and we, we read these words or we see them printed on things and, and we just kind of rush by them. But, 
we, we need to come back and, and kind of look at these a little more closely. They're telling us about who Jesus is. And I, again, we always advertise Wednesday night. You want to have a Bible study about this text, join us on Wednesday. You know, you want to talk about this text more in depth, you know, join, um, you know, the growth group. But for tonight, just for a little bit of context, these words were written about 800 years before Jesus was born. And, and what, it, what, what, what this meant to the people when this was being written and this was being said, it, it was being said at a time when, when, for Israel, danger was everywhere. Danger was everywhere. They were threatened by the, uh, at that time, the, the, the power in that region was the Assyrians. And they had already been attacked. They had already lost cities. People had already been slaughtered and devastated. They, they were still kind of holding on. But in the midst of this, God gives Isaiah this really important but horrible job. If you ever think your job is the worst job, okay, think about Isaiah's job. Isaiah has to go to his own people as they're being threatened, and he has to tell them, uh, guys, it ain't gonna get better. It ain't gonna get better, it's gonna get worse, and guess what? It's our fault. This is God's judgment on us because for at least a hundred years, if not more, we have abandoned the covenant, the promise we made to God, and said, God, you'll be our God, and we're going to follow you, and you, you've given us these, these laws that we can live by so that we can have this, this strong, healthy society in a very difficult place to have a strong, healthy society. Still to this day, where it's a place where three continents meet. Really difficult. And God says, make a covenant with you. And they say, we make a covenant with you. And we, we know you're the only God and we're going to worship you, God. But for a hundred years or more, and we usually get this in the Bible from the kings. We, get, we hear about who the kings are. But really, when it's telling us who the kings are, it's telling us a lot about the people. Because the kings, they're no longer just worshiping God. They're starting to kind of want to fit in with all the cultures around them. They're starting to, to fall into the worship of the Canaanite gods. And you might go, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with a little bit of being tolerant? What's long, wrong with trying to just get along? Well, there's a lot wrong with it. And in this time, what it was leading this to was, was the kings were actually setting up places of worship and the places of worship for these false gods involved so many things that the Bible has said don't do these things if you do these things it goes against the law but it's more than goes against the law it's going to tear apart your society 
And I don't want to go into depth to these, these practices, but they involved things that, again, you can go through the Ten Commandments and pretty much wiped out about eight or nine of them. And it wasn't going on for one king or two kings. It was going on king after king, generation after generation. So here's Isaiah's job. God says, here's your job, Isaiah. Go tell your people all those threats out there, I'm actually allowing them to come because they are judgment on you. You might imagine Isaiah wasn't the most popular guy in the world. But what is so awesome about the prophecies of God when he tells, when he talks about judgment, what is so awesome about it, and we see it in, in every one of the prophets, and we see it here in Isaiah, that in the midst of judgment, there is the extension of hope. And this hope was the ultimate hope, that there is going to be this Messiah who comes, this Savior who comes. And this Savior will be like no other. You see, if you read the Bible, you might think that all the ancient peoples wrote like how the Bible is written. Not true. What they called history back when the Bible was written what it really was, was it was propaganda. If you were the historian for the king and the king lost a battle, you did not mention that. What you might say is, the king went out to battle and then he came back. That's all you're going to say. You're not going to say he came back running and crying or limping because, you know, he had three arrows in his leg. No, you're not going to say that. You're going to say... He went out to battle, and he came back. Of course, if he wins, you're going to talk about that. You're going to talk about how great and awesome he was. You read scripture talking about their own kings. The Israelites didn't do that. Even their greatest king, David, we get to see David in all his weakness, in all his sin. It was unusual for them to just say all these wonderful, flowery, flowery things. And so when we read this, we know something's going on here. Because this prophecy is not just saying like really nice things about this really cool king that's coming. No. It's saying his name. And his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It says that his kingdom will last forever and it will be a kingdom of righteousness and justice. This is no mere human. Even, you know, the, the Jewish scholars before Christ, they, they understood this. And when Jesus comes and, and his followers see, they, they realize this, that's, Jesus is who they were talking about. And when we see Jesus talked about this way, then we come to this kind of, this 
for lack of a better term, a conundrum that a lot of the world has, and even some Christians. You see, a lot of people are okay accepting Jesus as a great teacher, or they're even okay with accepting Jesus as kind of their own kind of personal savior. He's like their divine butler. You know, he can do everything. You fall down, he can help you get up. You need something, he can go get it for you. But very few people want to accept Jesus the way he's being described here. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. If someone says, these are my titles, or if we're told by God, that's somebody's titles, and we believe it, we wouldn't just kind of go like, oh, okay, so, you know, once a year on your birthday, we'll kind of honor you. No. If we believe Jesus is wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, it's going to kind of evoke a different response from us. He's not like your, your little personal pocket Jesus that you can kind of carry around and pull out whenever you go through hard times. No. This prophecy is not just saying a Savior is coming. It's saying God himself is coming. Just to quickly unpack just a few of these, the first one it says, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. What does that mean? You know, for us, counselor means, you know, that person you go to to go talk to and you're having, you know, emotional issues or problems in your marriage or something like that. But that's really not what it's, what it's talking about in this context. It isn't Jesus is, you know, the great psychiatrist in the sky you can share all your problems with. And it kind of has this sense of counselor being like the counselor to the, you know, that would, would have been to the king. Except this king needs no counselor. He already knows it all. He knows how things work. He knows the purposes and, of, of awe, and whether it's big or small. And it says he's wonderful. The word wonderful actually means is exactly what it sounds like, full of wonder. And it was often used in reference to God. Each one of these titles somehow references God. This is telling us Jesus, he knows the deep purposes for all creation. He understands the kingdom of God. He understands why God created and why he created this way. It's not simply that he understands my situation and the problems I'm going through. It's much more than that. 
The next term, Jesus is the mighty God. That's a crazy thing for a Jewish person to say. Jesus himself doesn't even actually say those words and some of the other Jewish leaders in his day want to have him killed because he's sort of implying it or suggesting it. But it says, mighty God. God's name was so revered that, that you know, the, the scribes wouldn't even write it out. They, they came up with this kind of code to be able to say this is where God's name goes, but we're not gonna write it out because it's so holy. To just throw that out and to say that human king is mighty God, unthinkable. Unthinkable for, for, for the Jewish person. No, it's not just a name, it's not just a title. He is the mighty God. Isaiah doesn't understand. I'm not going to tell you Isaiah understands the Trinity. He doesn't. But he knows that the one who is coming will have the title mighty God. We're going to get to know, you know, 800 years later and now 2,000 years after that because of Scripture, we're going to get to know that Jesus was the mighty God because he was the Son of God. The third thing we see here is he's called the everlasting father. And in this context, the understanding is, is, is not so much that he's the source of all things, which is often what's talked about when we talk about God the father. But it's kind of the sense of the everlasting father as the one who will take care of us. And by taking care of us, again, it's not just taking care of you when you fall down and you skin your knee, but has in, in, our mind, in his mind all of our existence. He's the everlasting father. If he's only there to put a band-aid on my knee, he doesn't need to be everlasting. But he's the one who not just knows the purpose of all things, but he is the one who will will go with us through all these things. And the final title that's given to him is the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace. If you come on Sunday mornings, you, you know, you've heard me say this before, that when we think about you know, who Jesus is, when we think about what the gospel is, we think about what the kingdom is, one of the things we say here, because it's what Scripture teaches us, is, that, is not that Jesus is a way. He's not a possible solution. He's not one of many. He is the only way. He is the only hope. Now, to me, this is particularly important to people who think if you're not somebody who thinks, you can take a little break for about two minutes. The rest of you, the ones of you who think, okay, this is of particular importance. Because if you look at what's going on in our world today, if you look at history and all the human attempts to try to 
create peace. Even at the time when Jesus is born, it's, the time is known in the Western world as Pax Romana. It means the peace of Rome. But do you know how the peace of Rome was established and maintained? It's because Rome had the strongest army. They had the most money. They had the most power. Their peace was a peace that had to be enforced, and sometimes brutally. You can look through human history, and you even look today to what's going on in in our world today. Attempts by, by people to try to create peace. It doesn't create peace. You look at the United Nations, if you ever pay attention to what's going on in the United Nations, it's just kind of like, you know, some sort of warfare that goes on, but it's going on in some kind of diplomatic way. It's not peace. What Scripture tells us that Jesus comes to do is give us true peace. It's one of the reasons, like, for me, like, that I, I, I want to, to preach the message. I want to study the gospel. It's because I look at what the, where the world is going, and the world has, has moved to this place, especially in our society. We've moved to this place where we've just decided, first of all, there is no God, and if there is a God, he's not really interested in dealing with us on a day-to-day basis. Therefore, we're kind of left on our own. And if you really have the sense that there is no God and this is all that there is, then there's really nothing to base truth on, and if there's nothing to base truth on, there's nothing to base peace on. Why should we even value peace? The only reason we value peace is because there's something that tells us it's good. But if you've said there's nothing that's truly good, how can you say peace is even truly good? If you feel really confused because I keep saying the same words and it sounds like I'm spinning around a circle, yes, that's exactly what's going on in our world today. People are being drugged into this, this way of thinking, this conversation of saying, oh, we're just a huge cosmic accident, and then we're another cosmic accident from happening. But you know what? While you're here, you should be good to each other. Why? What's the basis for it? How can you say there is no good and then say you should be good to each other? It makes no sense. But it's the world we live in. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it says, no, there is another way. Jesus is the prince of peace because Jesus understands this thing that most of us don't accept right off the bat. If you're a believer in Christ, you know you accept it, otherwise you would never have become a Christian. And it's something we see actually in this text at the very end where it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That little sentence is a reminder 
that this great prophecy is going to come about because of what God is going to do. And we're going to find out later on when Jesus comes, and we'll look more at this on Sunday morning. We're going to find out later on that, that Jesus understands there is no peace if all we do is just keep everybody the same and just keep moving them around. There is no peace. In fact, everything becomes more and more dangerous because we make bigger and more dangerous weapons. There is no peace. The only way there can be peace is if each of us is transformed through faith in Jesus Christ, transformed by his Holy Spirit, so that we have his peace that we can then extend to others. There is no peace otherwise. There's just people learning to get along until they don't. It's just people learning to share until they don't want to. It's people just treating each other with respect until they don't want to treat each other with respect anymore. Christianity, as we've said often, is the only faith that says up front, it is impossible, it is impossible for us to be able to get this right. We need Jesus. And we don't need a small Jesus. We don't need a little Jesus we've carefully crafted in our own minds. We need the Jesus who's described here as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That's the Jesus we need. If, you know, tonight you've come here, maybe somebody invited you to come, maybe you're listening online, and, you know, you don't know this Jesus. You don't know what it means to, you know, it's the first time you've ever heard this about Jesus. I encourage you, don't let it be the last time. Ask people. Ask me. Ask Pastor John. Talk with us. We would love to, to share with you what the Word of God says. Maybe some of you have in your head, you're like, yeah, I know who Jesus is, but, you know, I've never heard him talked about this way. Well, if you've never heard him talked about this way, you don't really know who Jesus is. This is the Jesus from Scripture. He's not your, your therapist. He's not your doctor or your nurse. He's not your butler. He's not your genie. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the Savior and the Lord of all creation. That's the Jesus that Scripture says. And if you say, I, I know him, I, I've accepted Jesus, but you haven't accepted that Jesus, you haven't accepted Jesus. You haven't believed in Jesus. Because if you believed in that Jesus, you would not be able to stop from trying to do and learn as much as you can and, and give whatever you can in your life to serve him. It wouldn't be enough because you would understand who that Jesus is.
Some of us as are Christians, and, and we've kind of just kind of plateaued. You want to know, to me, one of the ways you jumpstart kind of plateauing as a Christian? Spend time learning about who Jesus is, the one you call Lord, and you will realize there's no reason to ever plateau. He is an infinite God, infinitely wonderful. So much that he has to offer. And some of you, this is just like, yeah, you know, because you know this God. You know this Savior. You know this Jesus. And this is just, oh man, it's exciting to hear it again, to be reminded of his greatness because it's something that's familiar to you, but it's fresh and it's powerful and it's real. I don't know where you are. I don't know which one of those things that you are, but I pray that this, as we've taken this brief, quick glance at this scripture, that you have a deeper sense of who Jesus is and what it means to call him Savior and Lord.